0: They should have like a google maps feature that's like instead of avoid highways just like avoid schools
1: <laughs> oh I, maybe i will write that because that's what i do anytime i travel
2: this is behind the lens a podcast from the lens new orleans 1st nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom i'm carolyn Heldman. on this week's episode traffic cameras are off in school zones but lights are still flashing in some areas creating a dangerous and confusing situation for some drivers A city official raised ethics concerns about the Smart Cities project days before it was abandoned, despite the administration's continued dismissal of those allegations. Some Louisiana kids are being sent to detention facilities in nearby states, potentially violating state laws. Those stories, insight and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel. Hey, Nick. Morning, Kayla. And Lens Editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, Charles. Good morning. Marta, those of us who drive around the city notice that some school zone cameras are off for the summer. However, there are lights still flashing. The city is acknowledging that several still have warning lights turned on. City officials are attributing this to a shortage of manpower, but it's confusing because sometimes... Drivers will slow down and others don't. So what's happening? When did school zones turn off and are cameras still ticketing at all?
1: Yeah, so school zones turned off about, I believe it was the third or fourth week of May, you know, towards the end. The school year ends around mid-May. There's a little bit of a bleed there with testing and other things, but the city confirmed that in late May that the cameras were off. However, after they confirmed that, and we told that to our readers just on social media, they. Tons of people came out and said, there are still flashing lights everywhere. We don't know what you're talking about. Um, and then we asked the city and they said, oh, you know, there is a manpower shortage. So we we are still working on some of that. Um, and, you know, I think what a lot of drivers noted and what I've seen in the past and um, stories I've literally written in the past, this is not my favorite annual story to write, <laughs> is that half the drivers are going 35 and half the drivers are going 20.
2: Right. You see the flashing light and a lot of people see that flashing light and slow down significantly.
1: Yeah. Right. And I think even more people do here because you can be ticketed for it um, often, which so apparently they're not ticketing it at all. But, you know, you still see that light and that's your natural instinct.
3: Yeah. You know, so what they told you basically is that the, the lights are on, but it doesn't matter because the cameras are off. Of course, you know, Marta makes the point that when some people are aware that schools are out and the other people are just paying attention to the lights, you can have you can have some people slamming on their brakes while other people are continuing to go 35 or 40 miles an hour, um, which, you know, could potentially create a danger, d- dangerous situation. But beyond that, I would say the bigger issue here is that you know, if this were a single instance, if, and if it were the only problem, that would be one thing. But this is a symptom of, of the city just having lost or never having any control over these lights whatsoever. <laughs> um, this isn't just, you know, some lights are still on during the summer. This is this the this is lights that are supposed to be on during the school year never ever come on or you know that will come on at hours that have nothing to do with school zone hours as marta has mentioned she has written about this before and i'll go i'll I'll say you know more than that she started writing about this seven years ago um and they still have not fixed this problem on top of that the response to this particular story that they gave Marta, the spin was just fantastic. They told Marta that it was actually a good thing, that they don't have any control <laughs> over the system whatsoever.
1: Oh, yes. They, um, they said it was a good thing the lights were on because uh, lo- driving at a lower speed, which the lights indicate you should drive 20 miles per hour, is better in general because it is safer.
3: And, and it also makes people aware of the school zone locations, I believe they
1: said they did say that yep
2: so the logical conclusion there would be that that the speed limit should be changed all around the city if that's the case
1: right so if that's a if that's a policy decision we're making let's do it up front instead of (laughs) this blank backwards way (laughs) right yeah (laughs) Yeah, i mean (laughs) yeah
3: if you want if you want people to drive slower in areas where there are schools you could always just make it a permanent thing uh and that would that would that would be fine. But it, you can't say that having no control over a piece of city infrastructure is a good thing. Right. Um, it's also, uh, and somebody pointed this out on Twitter, it's also theoretically you're training people to just ignore and disregard school zones. I
1: think um, that's my favorite thing I've ever written yeah. <laughs> was like, you know, drivers don't know which um, signs or signals to innately ignore. Um, right. You know, right. You can't, you can't do that to the public, then they don't trust the system, which is what we've been talking about for seven years. Um,
4: also, I, I'm, the, I'm one of the drivers that's still going 20 miles an hour when I see the flashing lights, because I, I understand. I mean, Marta, I've, re- I've read all your reporting. I understand what's going on. I understand that you're not they're not supposed to ticket me. But
3: I do have a pretty low level of confidence that 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 i'm actually not going to get a ticket right people don't don't know what to do they don't know what to think they don't know how they're supposed to behave and they don't know whether or not there will be consequences well so you, you know, some to- people are just going to ignore all school zones and other people who just assume they're going to be ticketed because they, they don't have confidence that the c- city can do what it says so
1: right and those are expensive tickets so it's you know you're not going to not go to 20- not that you don't care about being slow around schools but like People follow that for that reason too.
2: Yep. Okay. An inelegant transition perhaps, but I have to, it, it, you teed me up. Um, the city has responded to the issue with the lights because they don't have enough manpower and they don't have, they don't have control over these traffic lights. Could this potentially have been solved by the now abandoned Smart Cities project? Would this have been something <laughs> that could have tied in together?
1: I'm going to interject before Michael answers this question. We already have a Smart Cities System with the school zone lights. They oh. could program these for the exact days for every single year. That's been true for more than a decade, and they don't. So they have the technology and they don't use it? Uh, correct. Yes.
3: So
2: I, all that,
3: by the way,
1: <laughs> what? <laughs> we, I can throw to Michael. I'm just like, no, no, no. Go, ahead. go ahead. The taxpayers have paid for this technology and the city does not use it.
2: We're going to transition to smart cities now because it continues to stay in the news. Thanks, Marta. Um, Michael, In the latest Smart Cities Project news, some new documents show that one week before the project collapsed, a city official wrote a letter to the city's preferred contractors saying they had new information that raised doubt about the validity of the proposal. What's the latest on this?
4: Yeah, we have more Smart Cities news for you. The latest here really just has to do with how much concern there was about these allegations within the Cantrell administration and what really led to the collapse of this project. The city's uh, preferred contractors for the Smart Cities project dropped out in April. Um, and that's kind of when the whole project kind of fell apart. Um, and, and that was happening as the city council was ramping up its inve- investigations into these contract rigging alleg- allegations um, that have surrounded this for months now. And, and basically after the contractors dropped out, you saw this response from the Cantrell administration that you know was more or less You know, blaming the council for the collapse of what was going to be an amazing project for the citizens of New Orleans. Um, You know, a a statement they put out right after the contractors announced they were dropping out said that it was no surprise given the, quote unquote, contentious atmosphere uh, that had been created around this. What this letter shows is that. A few days before uh, the contractors dropped out, the city's chief procurement officer, an an official within the Cantrell administration, wrote a letter to the Smart Cities contractors saying, we have found new information that, that basically gives some validity to these claims and you know the the information was significant enough that the city is now warranted in reconsidering its position on these bid rigging allegations so uh, up till now the administration had publicly been saying nothing nothing was wrong with this procurement process these allegations are unfounded Uh, but here we have a letter where even within the administration they were saying hey we might have to revisit this uh,
3: based on this new information we found and let me just add that yes, it was up to this point that they were saying that, and I would say even more importantly, they continued saying that after this letter that was not that was not disclosed to the public until last week. They continued saying that uh, on on uh, April twenty seventh, I believe it was, or no, in, in April twenty fifth or twenty seventh, when Jonathan Rhodes, who uh, was is the mayor's uh, or the director of the office, the mayor's office of utilities. Um, he's been one of the, the, the officials under a lot of scrutiny here. He was the first to be subpoenaed and the, and the, the only so far to go in front of the city council to give uh, to give sworn testimony on this. So the day that he appears for his sworn testimony in city council, and this was after the chief procurement officer sent out this letter. The Cantrell administration, or the Cantrell herself, wrote a letter to the city council calling this whole investigation a big s- spectacle. She used the word spectacle in an attack, an attempt to stifle her administration, basically calling the whole thing pointless. And uh, Rhodes, who was copied on this the email that contained this letter from the chief procurement officer, Never said anything about it to the city council it, when they were asking him specifically if there were any problems with the procurement process when he was when he was giving sworn testimony in front of them. Now, you know, granted, I don't think that the city council ever asked him, you know, ever asked him point blank, was there a letter expressing concerns from uh, from the Department of Procurement? But nevertheless, they did ask him about whether everything was done properly in the mm. procurement process, and you would think that would be a good time to mention well i believe so but you know to be completely honest there are some concerns coming out of the bureau of purchasing about
2: right this. right 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 it's befuddling right. isn't it
3: i would note and you know i'm sure michael was going to mention this that this is this is one of the first emails that appears in uh in uh in a uh a, an email dump from clifton davis cantrell's chief of staff who the the council subpoenaed documents for him, from him and and the and the mayor's office fought that subpoena tried to get that subpoena thrown out mm,
2: mm, mm. so
3: I'm not, I'm not sure if it was because of this email specifically or mm. or something or something else in there or they just had other reasons uh that they they uh they didn't want these documents to come out
1: okay i think on a side note too we often you know we see a lot of quote-unquote corruption in the city or issues ethical issues and stuff and it, so often at the charter school level, I think is where you see like, is this people just taking kind of the easy way out, right? Like having this agency help write the, the you know, the the bid doc, the RFP document, or you just see this like staging of um, issues from like easy way out to like full blown corruption, and it, it's always interesting to see where it falls on the scale.
2: Mm. So what is is the city now saying, Michael, to this to all this new revelation? Well,
4: so the the city isn't saying much. I, you know, like Charles said, I mean, the, one one of the significant points here is that this document was, um, you know, contained in in um, emails from. It was contained in the subpoena response for uh, Cantrell's chief of staff, Clifton Davis, and and like Charles mentioned, the city actually went to court. Um, to, to to try and stop this one subpoena, right. um, w- which we've covered extensively, but it was always interesting to me at the time that they chose this one subpoena to challenge instead of all five. So obviously, you know, the question before we got these documents was what's going to be in them. Yeah. Um, and, and I think what. What they showed um, through our reporting and some reporting from the Times-Picayune is that, you know, the Davis emails really blow a hole in the city's, you know, main the city's central argument from, from the minute we've been reporting about these contract fixing allegations. So, I mean, I, I won't go on too long, but, you know, it, there's a lot of allegations within the, the broader smart city story that the one that we first reported on, the one that's kind of central to all of this, it, it's this pro bono consultant, um, you know, called Ignite Cities. And, and I should say pro bono, I should probably put that in quotes um, at this point, but, but, you know, that, basically the, the the first allegation was that the city had used this consultant to help develop this project to help write the public bid documents um, and and yet this company had clear business connections with the prospective bidders right. and, and and you know there was no, and basically the city had two defenses to that the first thing they said is hey well number one we don't actually have an official contract with ignite cities they're a pro bono consultant. But they don't actually have a contract, meaning there can't be an official conflict of interest with the city. Their second defense was well, we aren't aware uh, of any financial interest that Ignite Cities has in this contract. Now, the first one seems to be contradicted by the, these Davis emails. The, the, the Times Picayune um, wrote a story the same day that the documents were released showing that Ignite Cities and Mayor Cantrell had actually signed a contract. Now, but previously, we had known that there was a draft contract out there and there were already questions about why didn't you sign it and and why did you even write this agreement up if if you weren't going to sign it. Um, But now we know for sure that they actually did sign this agreement. So, you know, that the the city's first argument that there was no contract is, is, you know, just doesn't work anymore. Um, And then on the second piece that we're not aware of any financial interest that Ignite Cities has here, Um, you know, that one has been a little hard to believe from the beginning. Um, You know, the the city has never really fully responded to our questions about why a for-profit company would be doing so much work for free if they had no financial incentive whatsoever. There were also online, very public announcements of Ignite Cities forming business partnerships with these companies that would go on to win the public bid. But now with this letter, we know that officially there are now... concerns within the procurement office um, about these financial ties, right? So this kind of, this letter um, from the procurement office, you know, saying, hey, we have new information raising issues, showing that there's a financial connection here, um, really gets rid of that final response that the city has been leaning on which is hey we're not aware of any financial connection
3: it's going to be hard for them to make that claim at this point right so we don't know what information that they uncovered it was uncovered apparently in some meeting between the purchasing office and the the bidders which is a consortium of businesses called smart and connected nola and and Um, i should say that that meeting um was held on the day that jonathan
4: rhodes original subpoena was due i'm not sure if that had anything to do with the meeting um or
3: the testimony he was about to give but just one yeah, so, yeah. This meeting did occur after the subpoenas went out, so you know it would it, I, it wouldn't surprise me if the purchasing office was just doing due diligence and you know trying to get some of these questions answered. But. Um, one of the things that struck me, even though they didn't say what the information that they, they uncovered in the, in the meeting was, one of the things that struck me in the email was they cited a possible violation of, what, what is it, the non-solicitation provision in, in, the, in, the, in the RFP documents, is that right, Michael?
4: Yeah. Yeah. Just basically a, a part of the document saying, hey, you're not going to pay another individual or a company to help you get an inside track on this public bid process. You know, you're not going to secretly lobby us and try and, you know, corrupt this procurement. Office. You basically have to agree to that when submitting the, the, the RFP response.
3: Which which sounds very much like, you know, it which which suggests at least that they may have uncovered something. Um, suggesting that the businesses within this consortium, Smart and Connected NOLA, um, acknowledged to city hall officials that they did in fact have a business relationship with Ignite Cities. Right.
1: Um, now, they, is that something I'm, they officially acknowledge in like a in the application or something, or you think they, it was just hinted at somewhere?
3: Well, no, no, no. I, I, I I'm saying I. It sounds like they may have acknowledged that in the meeting that they had with the Smart and Connected NOLA. People.
4: Yeah, and and let me just. I, I want to add that yeah the city apparently has new information that that shows that there's a financial connection between ignite cities and these other companies but let me just say that that has been fairly obvious for a long long time i mean if you look at the press releases that announced the partnership between ignite cities and these other companies the role that ignite cities is supposed to play is exactly what they've been doing in new orleans their role in the partnership is to make connections to city governments and help those governments design projects that their other partners will then be able to actually you know meet with their technology and their money so the way that ignite cities operates their whole purpose is to make these connections. So so again, what they've described online in this business partnership has it, been exactly what we've seen them doing in New Orleans. Um, you know, it, it's good that the procurement office seems to be now taking this a, a little bit more seriously, but these allegations about, you know, Ignite cities kind of having a conflict of interest here um, were first brought to the city by, you know, a, a competing bidder on the project, Cox Communication, which submitted a formal protest, basically laying all these allegations out Um, that, you know, Jonathan Rhodes and his office responded, basically dismissing the allegations and the procurement office itself um, last year dismissed the protest altogether. Mm. So, you know, the procurement office has been aware of these allegations broadly for a long, long time and dismissed them, um, you know, roughly a year ago. Um, So, you know, again, you know, this new information,
3: I I guess is significant, but the city has been aware of these allegations um, for a long, long time. Some added significance to these new revelations, both from us and the, and the Times Picayune, is that is that it's it seems clear that officials were not being completely honest in their response to Cox's protest in an official legal communication with Cox de- denying their protest. Um, and and number two, the Times Picayune reported that they uh, they had put in a public records request for any and all agreements between signed agreements between the city of New Orleans and Ignite Cities. And the city, before these documents came out, denied that request on the basis that no such agreements exist. Mm. So we're seeing more and more evidence that there were there were things being said in official legal communications or communications that the city has a legal obligation to respond or honestly to that the city was not being honest. Mm.
2: All right. What's next? What can we expect?
3: Oh man.
1: Uh,
4: (laughs) your guess is, your guess is as good as mine. No, I mean, you know, things just keep on coming with this. Um, you know, I, I, uh, you know, we still have the the council investigation ongoing. Um, you know, they're still, I'm not sure, you know, they've been looking to hire a lawyer to to help represent them in all this and to help, you know, kind of run the investigation. Um, I'm actually not sure if they've been successful at hiring somebody, but, um, the, the council investigation is going to keep on bringing up new stuff. It's kind of hard to predict where this story goes next, but, uh, the stories will keep coming. I'd be curious if we see anything from Cox.
3: Yeah. This, some new stuff.
4: Yeah. I mean, Cox has been arguing, you know, uh, they have been arguing they, they were the second place, you know, second rated bidder in this project. So they've kind of been arguing from the start that, you know, once this is canceled, um, they should be handed the contract. I'm not sure if their argument is very strong on that. And, and I, I think the likelihood is pretty low that the city is going to go
3: forward with Cox's pr- proposal, but, um, cox is probably still going to argue that they should get the contract oh yeah i think i i think their argument that they should get the contract if they were second place doesn't go anywhere because the city always has the option to just drop the project altogether which they did uh, but i'm i'm more referring to uh, if cox is going to respond in any way on Legally. the basis that they were not being truth that the city was not being truthful in its response to their original protest yeah right. not very possible
2: right exactly <laughs> all right michael thank you thank you You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter, Marta Jusen, government and cultural economy reporter, Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter, Nick Crastel, and Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Karen Gadwa, the co-founder and executive director of The Lens. The Lens aims to engage and empower the residents of New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. We provide the information and analysis necessary to advocate for more accountable and just governance. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org donate. Thank you. Nick, a number of parishes and cities across the state are sending kids who are arrested to juvenile detention centers, sometimes hours away in Alabama and Mississippi. Some argue this violates state law and advocates say it keeps them far away from family and lawyers. How did you hear about this story?
0: Yeah, so I actually came across it because I was, I was watching a legislative hearing um, several months ago and they were discussing a bill that would have reversed the raise the age le- legislation that put all 17 year olds into, into the juvenile justice system that previously were, were being charged as adults. And some people were arguing that that we should go back to that, that all 17-year-olds should be charged as an adult. A district attorney, Tony Clayton, was testifying, and he was arguing, he was saying, you know, I have these 17-year-olds, and I should be able to just put them in my adult jail here because otherwise I have to send them to Alabama. And I'd never heard of that. I'd, I'd never heard of kids being, you know, sent across state lines. Right. Right. Um, So I made a few calls to kind of see if that was a a regular practice. A number of people told me they'd never heard about it either. These are people who, you know, work in criminal justice areas and work uh, in juvenile justice. And then a few people said, yes, we've heard of this, but we don't really know how frequently it happens. We think it's illegal, but no one's really talking about it. Mm. Um, So that's kind of, when I started trying to dig in a little more and see if I could uh, figure out kind of the scope of, of the, of the issue.
2: What did you get a handle on how frequent it is?
0: Well, I got some idea, although it's hard to know if I got the the full story um, for sort of reasons that are, are sort of a problem in themselves. But, but I found that at least a dozen cities or parishes have been contracting in the last year or so with a, Two different detention facilities, one in Natchez, Mississippi, and one in Dothan, Alabama, which is in the far southeast corner of Alabama, so you know quite far away from Louisiana. And that, you know, in the, for the Mississippi facility, there's been over fifty kids in, in the last year from Louisiana that, that are being held there, um, or have been held there, I should say. Not not all of them are being held right now. Um, so it's a pretty you know significant amount of kids and and I should say these are kids who have been arrested but have not been adjudicated in the either in the juvenile justice system or in the adult uh, legal system if that's if they're being charged as adults so they're not guilty of anything yet they've just been arrested um but you know like like you said oftentimes they're being held hours away from from lawyers and families which you know causes all sorts of issues that that you know you can probably imagine all
2: right um, so well, why
0: well, the reason seems to be is there's not enough juvenile detention beds in Louisiana to hold these kids. Although I will say that this part of the story is is something I'm still sort of trying to get a handle on, which is why are there not enough beds and how much has the the capacity of the ju- juvenile justice system diminished in, the, in recent years to make this a bigger problem, which it definitely seems to be. Um, so I will say it was, it, very few people wanted to talk to me For this story, I I contacted every, you know, I think every parish that I could find that was that was doing this and I was only able to talk to, you know, one parish official in Point Capi, who basically said this is a last resort we call we they don't have a juvenile detention center in their own parish. um, But they call around to to other parishes there's 13 in the state that that have them and they call those places first and ask if they have beds available. And then if they don't, they need to figure something else out. Um, so, you know, there that kind of leaves a few potential solutions to this problem. And I kind of get into that in the story a bit. But, you know, there's some need for greater capacity or, you know, on the other hand, um, sort of a, a lowering the, the the amount of kids who are, who are being held in the first place.
3: Well, yeah. And, and so to speak to those two points, I guess one point, I guess, goes to what... Uh... The sheriffs might argue, which is question one: is could this be remedied by uh, creating a, a a segregated juvenile wing in in adult jails? And and before you answer that, let me get to question two. On the other hand, do we know what what kind of um, cases we're talking about here? Because it's one thing if all of these kids being you know being sent off because they don't have space are you know charged with crimes of violence uh and it's another thing if uh these kids being sent off to alabama and mississippi are being charged with you know minor drug possession
1: yeah that's
0: that's a good question and it's something that because of the confidentiality of the juvenile court proceedings i really haven't been able to get a a good handle on um you know it's you can kind of imagine that that these parishes don't want to talk about the issue because there's been there are that sending these kids to juvenile detention facilities in other states is illegal. um, And that any, any kid needs to be, you know, sent to a a facility licensed by the, by Louisiana's department of uh, children and family services. But it was also really hard to get uh, juvenile defense attorneys who have kids in these facilities to really talk about the issue. And, you know, part of the reason I think is that they're uh, worried that it's going to somehow come back on on their clients um, and that it's actually not going to be helpful for them. So that being said, because these, these court proceedings are confidential and because it was very difficult to get defense attorneys to, to discuss the issue with me, it, it's hard to get a good sense of who exactly these kids are, what exactly they're being charged with, um, and then it's harder to come up with <clears throat> what the right solution exactly should be.
3: Well, well, assume, assuming that they all need to be, let, you know, let's let's give them the benefit of the doubt just for the sake of argument, and um, just assume that these are these are kids that have, you know, there's a there's a good reason that it, you know uh, that they need to be held that you know they could be they could be dangerous or they're a flight risk or whatever. Can this be remedied by creating segregated juvenile wings in the adult jails? And is that a legal? Is that would that be a legal remedy under you know federal and state law?
0: No, so no child being charged as a juvenile can be held in a, an adult facility. If they are being charged as an adult, which for certain crimes, prosecutors can make the decision to charge juveniles as adults, then a judge can order them to be held in, a, in an adult facility. Um, and that does happen um, on occasion in terms of a, a broad solution to this problem. You know, I think one, I don't know that that charging all these juveniles as adults, one, I I don't know that that they are committing, you know, acts that can be charged as adults. And then, you know, advocates would argue that that juveniles shouldn't be held in adult facilities, no matter what they're being charged with or, you know, whether or not they're being charged as, as kids or adults leaders in in officials in New Orleans have made this decision that they're not going to hold any juveniles in in adult jails, um, even when the DA has decided to charge them as adults. So I think it's, uh, you could argue, some people probably would argue that it might alleviate the problem to some degree.
3: But but it, doesn't uh, do, it doesn't do anything if they're being charged as juveniles, right? It doesn't like do they, anything it,
0: if they're being charged as juveniles. Um, That's yeah. right. And, and I
3: mean, we have to imagine that, it, it, that at least a healthy percentage of, of all of these kids that you're seeing, I mean, we don't know because we can't, we can't actually, you know we, don't know, we don't know enough of these cases to say one, one way or another, but, but uh, you know, the, the fact that you weren't able to get information on a lot of them suggests that they are in fact being charged as juveniles and couldn't be held in the adult jail even if it were a segregated wing under federal law yes <laughs> that's,
1: that's i right. think you hinted at this earlier i mean is this something we saw during like deinstitutionalization institutionalization in the 70s and 80s do we lose you know juvenile capacity or would there just more kids be yeah. like did we lose some facilities
0: i'm not you know i think that that's probably the case but i just don't know enough yet to to kind of i can't point to to facility closures specifically that would definitely cause this so so we know for sure that it's, it's been happening since going back to 2019 um because i have an invoice from the city of plaquemine to to a mississippi facility at that time and a few other uh, people i talked to said yeah this has been going on for at least several years everyone seems to agree that it's ramped up in the last few years um that it's happening much more frequently so i'm not quite sure what happened in that that time that forced these uh parishes or municipalities to start looking out of state i think covid could have something to do with it if parish other parishes are Prime less likely going to they a- take kids from you know neighboring parishes or parishes you know in other parts of the state if mm-hmm. they're trying to limit the limit the number of kids in them mm-hmm. um so i wouldn't be surprised if that was a big part of it but i'm not positive
3: the sheriff that you talked to was he aware um that there was a, a potential legal problem with this did he have any idea
0: uh, it was the parish president, not the sheriff. Parish
3: president, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. He didn't seem to have,
0: I asked him and he said, I don't know. He said, uh, he said, I don't know if they need to be licensed. He he seemed unconcerned with that specific aspect of it. Um, You know, he really seemed concerned with the cost of it. I think sending kids to the Alabama facility, both, I think is more expensive and, you know, is this very long drive that is inconvenient. I don't think anyone wants to be doing this, particularly. Mm -hmm. I don't think that, you know, the parishes that are, are contracting with these out of state facilities,
1: I think they'd prefer to
0: have a close, closer by facility. I think that the lawyers representing these kids would prefer to have them nearby. I'm I'm sure that their families would prefer to have them nearby. Right. Um, so, you know, it's this structural problem that, that really requires some sort of structural solution. Um, but. You know this is sort of part of the problem where where a lack of information comes in because even the people who knew that this was happening you know i talked to to richard Pittman, who uh is at the louisiana public defender board and and kind of does juvenile defense services i I asked him i was like do you how many parishes do you know that this is happening in this was early on in my reporting and he said four uh for sure but you know by the time i was ready to publish the story we had you know just 11 parishes contracting with mississippi and and several more with alabama so mm. it was much more widespread you know there's no comprehensive data being collected on this uh, as far as i can tell um state law requires all detention juvenile detention facilities in the state to collect a certain amount of data um that can be available um you know to to certain people i think da's and judges and people in the system but you know, I don't know that that the facilities in Mississippi and Alabama are are collecting that data. I don't know who it's available to, um, and, and I certainly don't know don't don't believe it's being reported to, to any state you know lawmakers or um, departments. So,
3: yeah, and there's a, I mean, yeah, there's no central authority kind of minding the store. Everybody's in charge of a different small aspect of it. You know, D- DCFs is in charge of what DCFs is in charge of. They're in charge of licensing the facilities that. That do exist uh, in the state. Um, Office of Juvenile Justice is uh, is is in charge of these juveniles once they're uh, once they're ju- adjudicated and found delinquent and sent to uh, sent to one of their homes. But there's no central authority. There's nobody central who's in charge of making sure uh, parishes, parishes, and parish sheriffs and local police departments or local uh, local city councils are, are doing what they're supposed to be doing with their pretrial juveniles. Yeah.
2: Okay. Well, you're shining a light on the problem. One lawyer so far challenging this in court. What's the argument, and what's happening with that?
0: Yeah, so a lawyer in a Assumption Parish just uh, filed an appeal after a judge denied his request to have a client of his that's being held in Mississippi um, either released or moved to an in-state facility. And he's, you know, making he's mm-hmm. making a legal argument that the that state law requires these facilities to be licensed by the Department of Children and Family Services. But you know he's also making some of the points that we talked about, which is that it's difficult for him to see his client. His client is being held far away from his family. So you know we'll we'll see what the judge has to say about it. The the law is written in a, a somewhat confusing way. There's no portion of it that says, for instance, a child can't be, a child cannot be sent across state lines, um, which would be a much clearer argument, but it certainly sets up a licensing mechanism for all juvenile detention facilities that they must be licensed. So we'll see what the uh, appellate court, how, how they read that, that statute. And I think there's a good chance that we'll it'll, it'll, it'll go to the Louisiana Supreme Court one way or another. Mm. Um, and then we'll see what happens from there.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'll, I'll add that while, while it doesn't say you can't do this, it does say you must send juveniles to a DCFS licensed facility, and a facility in, in Alabama, by definition, can't be a DCFS licensed facility. The, the, right. the, our, our state, our, our state Children and family services department does not does not license facilities in Alabama and Mississippi. They're right. outside of their jurisdiction.
2: Right. Great story. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. All right, everybody. Have a good week.
0: Thank you. Thanks, you Hi
2: guys. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the Lens, New Orleans first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Elvin. Thanks to our guests this week, Marta Jusen, Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Krastel, and Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.